This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 421. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource, as we always are. And um, I always try to base many of the topics of my podcast on what I happen to be doing in my life and how that inspires me and what that has me thinking about and try to share some of those thoughts and ideas with you. So this past week, uh, I did some really fantastic sessions up in Rhinebeck, New York, which is in upstate New York. It's about an hour and a half to two hours north of New York City. It's sort of in the fabled Woodstock area. There's lots of towns up there, including the town of Woodstock, which actually wasn't where the Woodstock uh, festival happened. It happened in Bethel, which was near Woodstock, but for some reason they called it the Woodstock Festival. But it's all these areas along the Hudson River, beautiful towns. There's a lot of musicians up there going back to the time of the 60s, uh, a lot of great recording studios up there. And I had the opportunity to uh, record some tracks with a very unusual and interesting guitar player slash engineer. Uh, his name is Rich Tazzoli. And you probably haven't heard of him, but you have most certainly heard him uh, in the form of uh, composing music for reality television shows. Um, the particular show that we were working towards uh, is the TV show Trading Spaces. It's a kind of a home redecoration type of show. Pretty popular, I think. It's on the TLC network. But Rich is a specialist in composing uh, music for a lot of these different shows. Um, he's, he's been on over, I guess, uh, 700 or 800 different series uh, in 36 different countries. And he's done stuff for CBS Sports, for the Olympics, Counting Cars, Pawn Stars, Duck Dynasty, Trading Spaces, uh, Major League Baseball, etc., etc., etc. And he's also, as an engineer, done a lot of work with fascinating artists uh, from Al Dimiola to Ace Frehley to Emerson Lake and Palmer. And it's a great story how I met Rich. We, we both were headed back to New York this past January from the NAM show, and we happened to get sat next to each other on the airplane. And it was one of those times, probably a lot of you have had these experiences, where you get sat next to somebody on an airplane, you strike up a conversation, and you end up talking to them for the entire length of the flight, which in our case was about five and a half hours. And um, he was enthralled with what I do as a drummer, as a drum historian. I was fascinated by his work as a composer and, um, and as a, 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 you know, he's also really into history. Uh, and, and, you know, it just was, we just hit it off like crazy. And so he said, look, man, I'll check out your stuff. We got to get you up to the studio in Rhinebeck, which is called The Clubhouse. It's one of a really amazing studio. I've done a lot of incredible albums up there over the years. And um, we got to get you in because I want to use some of your, uh, you know, your retro vibe and your vintage type gear and your awareness of these historical styles and get that in the mix with what I'm doing. So I've now done a few of these sessions with him up there. 
And it's just an incredible story uh, in terms of how the music is composed, what goes into it, um, what is expected of it, how we work it, how we develop it, uh, and it's a fascinating process. Um, uh, some of you who are loyal listeners know that I had a drummer on a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, Ray Levier, um, who also, um, uh, the main focus of our podcast was not necessarily his TV work, but he's done a lot of work with Rich as well. And through Rich, I met Ray, and then Ray became a guest on the podcast. So it's a, it's a, it's a happy, it was a really happy accident running into to Rich on the airplane. And um, partly what I'm so excited about is I can play some of the music that we recorded uh, at our sessions because um, we own it. And so uh, I don't have to worry about licensing. And so you can kind of hear some of the stuff we put together at this fantastic studio, the clubhouse up in Rhinebeck. So uh, without further ado, I will uh, share my interview and conversation with Rich Tozzoli. All right. So I am here with none other than uh, Rich Tozzoli, guitar player extraordinaire, Pro Tools Engineer Extraordinaire, and all-around human being extraordinaire. Rich, I want to welcome you to the Daniel Glass Show. Thank you, DG, if you don't mind me calling you DG, because that is what I call you. <laughs> that is what you call You're probably the only person that calls me DG, and I love it. I love it. All right. So, um, yeah, man. So, um, you have a very interesting story. Uh, the path that you have taken on the road... Uh, of, of music, the music business, uh, and, and your own path is, is quite fascinating. And um, maybe you could, you know, you're, you're a great guitar player, but you're also a recording engineer, and you're really into that side of the game. And, um, you know, uh, Pro Tools, which sort of today is everywhere we take it for granted, wasn't always there. Uh, you know, you were one of the first cats to get into it. So maybe you could kind of talk about sort of how you how you got into Pro Tools, what the world was like, and you as a guitar player, and, and you know all those sorts of things. Um, sure. Well, I was in the early early stages of Pro Tools simply because I thought digital recording was a, a great technology, and and this is the way things would go in the future. And when I first got my first Pro Tools uh, setup, it was. $16,000 for 16 tracks. So basically, <laughs> oh, wow. You're paying $1,000 per you know input channel back then, you might say. Uh, and I thought it was just, you know, wow, look at this plug-in. This is a, a Focusrite plug-in, man. Everyone's like, what are plug-ins? You know, the computer sounds terrible. And I have to say, it didn't sound that great back then. But I've always been of the argument that you put in good stuff. If you put in good stuff into Pro Tools, it's going to come out good. Now, it may not come out as good as analog tape did at that time, but it's going to have a sound, and you can craft that sound. And so I've been through the entire revolution of watching the, the full digital recording chain happen from zero till it is now. And it's been fabulous. I, I'm, I'm glad that Pro Tools became you know, a standard. And I'm not saying that it's the end all. I'm saying it simply works for me and a lot of other people. That's all it is. Yeah. Well, it certainly opened up the industry so that anybody can be their own recording engineer nowadays. Yeah, um, which pros and cons, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it, it, in some ways it has democratized things. It's still, you know, like anything, it's about uh, who's going to use it more successfully, who's going to really take advantage of it. Uh, you know, so that, that always is the case when it comes down to, to this industry that we're in. 
That is right. What what year uh, did you start to get into it? And what were you doing as a musician at that time that prompted you to want to jump on this uh, digital you know revolution in the making? I, I pretty much was not, quote, a musician at that time. I happened to be a guitar player. And still to this day, I consider myself the guitar is simply an instrument that I happen to play. Even though I'm on all these TV shows as a guitar player and I'm a guitar playing composer, to me it's simply a tool. So back then I was recording, at that time I was record, you know, I was coming up the chain, quote, as a recording engineer and um, I was very lucky since I was one of the early adapters to go out on the road with Emerson, Lake and Palmer and then I worked with Billy Squire and then I worked with Ace Freely and I worked with all these great musicians, Dion, all kinds of people. And it's because I knew technology, you know, it's because I had a Pro Tools rig. And one of the funny stories that I always tell is I had ELNP standing in a semicircle behind me, all three of them, uh, saying, Richard, what is this Pro Tools thing? So I had Emerson, Lake and Palmer in a semicircle behind me showing them what Pro Tools was because I had a portable rig that we were doing a record called Then and Now, I believe it was called. Um, and it was fun, you know, I was working with some great guys uh, who brought me out on the road, Will Alexander, who's an amazing keyboard technician for many years. Um, so, I mean, just just to stop you, but this this is kind of revolutionary, right? Because if, before, if you wanted to record a band live, you had to bring in the mobile unit, basically, a, a van with a giant tape machine in it and run all these cables, and now here you are showing up with a hard drive and a, and a you know, and a monitor, and, and basically doing monitor, the same thing. Yeah, and, and taking inputs for certain things. I wasn't necessarily recording venue-sized gigs. I was re- I was editing a, other shows that, that, you know, assembling a record and stuff. But I was showing them how to use digital for what it was good at. And that was just one of the artists that I started working with in that respect. And then I followed the path along the Pro Tools lines and just stayed with it all this time. And, and Well, again, because- what, what, what year was this when you started taking the, the rig out on the road this was the 90s somewhere in the 90s i hate to say it but they blur together you yeah. and we know <laughs> yeah time periods blur together they're all based, <laughs> on, they're based on what technology came out at the time that's how i remember whatever time period is in our, in our working yeah in exactly our working lives. very good um, so it was whenever pro tools was fairly new and people hadn't necessarily seen it yet uh, and I had, quote, a portable system, which really wasn't very portable, but for then it was. it was. It was kind of a shocking system. And one thing I have to say is that I have taken the time. A lot of engineers or people coming up the chain say, you know, how do you learn Pro Tools so well or how do you learn to record so well? And I actually had the manual. I had the physical Pro Tools manual, which was as big as a telephone book. And I would sit downstairs hour after hour, day after day, and flip the pages and learn one new trick per day or something. And Pro Tools has become my right hand. So I really don't have to think about it. it whatever happens in my brain goes into the system. So that's where I come at with the world of, of uh, digital recording Pro Tools. And I still use it every single day to this day. Amazing. And uh, so talk about Al Dimiola a little bit, because that's sort of a big name in your evolution um, and that's a, another artist that you that you worked with um, and had a close relationship with. And of course, he is one of the premier, you know, super super guitar wizards. Um, so that must have had you know some uh, interesting impact on you as a guitar player as well. Interestingly enough, it didn't, but it had an impact on me musically. Mm. And you, I think you know what I mean, and, and your listeners will understand. 
if you take the big picture of what Al offers, you take that for what it is. Working with Gumby Ortiz on percussion, traveling the world from here to Russia, learning how to record. So basically when I started with Al, um, I was just observing and learning recording. You know, I, I, this was still before Pro Tools, by the way. This is right as Pro Tools was coming out. He didn't believe in it. <clears throat> we were using ADATs and tape and stuff and mixing Flying Fingers in his basement. Flying Fingers went no automation. We were all moving right. our fingers. And it was fun. We had a great time working like that, you know, and it had its places. But I, I was blessed to be able to learn with the Frank Filippettis and, the, um, you know, some of the great engineers that he was working with at the time. And I just simply had my eyes open and I took in everything. <clears throat> and uh, he was a great guy to work with. And I ended up working at his studio with him and cutting records with him, you know, going on tour. And, you know, I, I thank him for that to this day. Absolutely. He's a he's a. He's a challenging guy to work with as far as notes go because you have to punch in and out so fast. Mm. And I actually was really good at punch in and punch outs. And I used to have to punch out in analog, meaning with on on ADATs. And, and if you miss the punch, you miss the punch. Oh, yeah. Like this. In. what that is. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I mean, even I think it Pro, Pro Tools when first came in, there was a little bit of latency you had to yeah. account for, right? Mm -hmm. little delay uh, between the program, you know, kicking in and yeah. and when you hit the button. Absolutely. And Al had a good home studio. And so I was, I've, I've always had a home studio. I had like early, early home studios. I've always been a fan of home studio recording and uh, and the ability to, to cut tracks yourself and get out of the big live rooms. There are a place for those. And we'll talk about that. But to be able to take it into your own domain and, and do it on your time. And that has drawbacks too, because you know Al would go and go and go and be like two o'clock in the morning. We'd be we can't hear anything anymore. Yeah, keeps going because there's no budget constraints. Right, it's a home Except studio. Except our, our hourly, you know, fee, and that he didn't care about really. So it's like, oh, let's keep going. Like we can't hear anything anymore. <laughs> our brain is fried. Yeah. So anyway, that, that was uh, you know that led to a lot of other wonderful gigs and uh, you know up the up the up the chain you might say wonderful so how how did all this lead to you you know because uh when people see reality shows they really they don't think that much about the music um they they the music serves a very particular purpose but maybe we even step back how did you get into doing television composing how did you how did you get into that i was actually very lucky to nickelodeon was literally my first paid television composing job uh, a friend of mine <clears throat> and I did a cassette and sent it of creative crazy stuff to someone named Tom Pompicello and Tom Pompicello was the guy who wrote MTV he also did Nickelodeon that was his him and several other you know people um, Frederator for example uh, branded the early days of that and then I was brought in and I did some tracks with him and, and um, really learned what that was about and that was the early days of that kind of music you know branding that over the years i sort of was watching artists when i was working with the you know the hall and oats and the observing successful artists the guys that i worked with and i would say oh that's how you make money huh you make money actually by owning your content and so i right. said oh television composers own your content even though you the publishing steps off into wherever it steps off into but I simply thought it was fascinating to write music for television. And I started and I, it just evolved, you might say. 
What, what kind of shows for Nickelodeon were you, were you doing? It wasn't shows. It was the Nickelodeon International Library. So it was like um, different pieces that they would pull, television shows would pull from. In those days, it was out on a CD that you'd send to all the Nickelodeon people. And today, obviously, it's not. Yeah. So that led to just understanding really what Tom Pompicello specifically taught me is what not to put in the music. So talk a little bit more then about how, say, composing a piece of incidental music. I don't know. Would you call it incidental music? You know, for a it's television actually, show, it, it's called BG or background. Background. Uh, uh-huh. as as so w- when when you're doing that, what is different about what you're doing when you're writing a song, for example? Okay, it's, it's a huge difference actually. Because a song, you're going to have your intro, verse, choruses, and you want a feeling to come across as the artist is in charge of the song or the band. The television piece is simply my job is to create a feeling behind a scene on television. It's to help push along the feeling of being in, you know, um, moonshiners to make an uncomfortable scene where they might be getting caught. Moonshiners is a, a show about guys that make moonshine out in the back, backwoods and, of wherever. And, you, and your music has to reflect that. Right. right. One star is needed to reflect funky, cool, bluesy stuff or, you know, if Chumley's doing a funny scene, this is, you know, porn stars, whatever. Each show has its own characters and or type of sound. And you make the music for that particular show and or sound. And you learn how to do crime music, how to do slide guitar, how to do rock for Fox Sports. You know, and uh, if your listeners put on television, listen to television next time. There's actually an incredible amount of really good music that these writers do. The reason is that we're, as writers, allowed to mix any genre to fit whatever works. So um, I will put crime music with ambient slide guitar or super hard rock parts, detuned eight-string guitars with crime music. And if you're cutting a record, that probably wouldn't work. But if you're creating a palette of sound for television, anything goes. Interesting. And so as a composer, you know, how, like, is there a way you can articulate how you decide which of these sounds you're going to go for? Um, like, what, where, where does that knowledge base come from? You know, Actually, it came from instinct, partially, believe it or not. But I also study my craft. When I watch TV, I actually don't watch TV. I study the actual shows. And I'll often flip around cable. And if I hear something hot, I'll get my iPhone out and record the voice memo and say, oh, listen to that. Whoever that writer is, is really good. Uh, even watching the Yankees network recently, I heard some really great rock tracks. And I was like, that whoever that is gets it. Yeah. So, you know, I was just I just listened to television, listen to Fox Sports. They use some really hard, heavy stuff, whereas CBS Sports uses a little bit funkier stuff, almost Bruno Mars type of sound, hmm. that kind of thing. Every channel has a sonic branding and every show has a sonic branding. And so you you're given an assignment sheet, often if it's for a particular show. And you will simply call up that show and watch it and say, oh, this is what they like to use. You know, uh, this certain slide guitar is going to work on Moonshiners. That wouldn't work on Fox Sports. Right. Um, we, one of the sessions that I did with you, uh, we, had, we had an opportunity to create a uh, spec um, a spec track, you know, uh, uh, for a, a show that was on the Major League Baseball Network. Yeah, that was so, cool. We actually scored to picture in the studio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, the process was really fascinating to me. So maybe you can walk uh, people through as far as how we did that uh, and, and talk about what they sent you and then what, what you do with it. 
Okay, so that's a score to picture situation, which is different than a typical background theme where you kind of write music in the vein. This is very specific. So they sent a QuickTime video. We loaded that into Pro Tools. We um, got long, a base. How long is the, was the video? I think that was just over a minute uh, because it's. A, I think it was an intro to a show. Mm-hmm. So we had you go out in the live room and we put a television. You were watching the television. We fed you a click track and you laid down. You were doing rock stuff. You were doing pretty hard. And, it was pretty hard and heavy what you were hitting. Yeah. Uh, and we did a couple of passes and you were like, Oh, I could do that better. I could do this section better. You know, so we kept cutting little parts in and out. And, um, then but, but I, let me, let me, to- let me stop you because you did one step before that, which was really, I thought quite interesting. You measured how long each shot was within the video. And we determined the number of bars that I was going to play and the number of sections I was going to play based on how the, how quickly the shots passed. So what we came up with was like one section was five bars, one section was seven bars, one was nine bars. You know, within this one minute thing, we that divided was a it up. Grid as well. So grid, imagine yeah. the Bugs Bunny writers in the day had no fixed grid. They're imagine doing that to picture. So we had fixed grid. We were able to yes cut this up because we found a tempo that worked for the picture. And that's right. You played segments, basically. You said, on here's bar, here's your seven bars of this, and then you go to this. And, yeah. So and then you put your ending. You know, your ending fills were important, depending on how big or small your ending fill was. And I think we stuck with snare fill with no toms, simply sonically, because that's what worked for that video image. Yeah. And what what was interesting too? So you were sort of conducting me, you know, right. because we we figured out. Obviously, it's a it's a theme. And the theme has to build just like a little mini pop song would build so that by the, you know, that the, the level that you're compelled as a listener, you, you get excited, you know, as the arc of this music goes. So you're counting the five bars, you know, and then you're, you're cueing me. And now I, you know, make a shift. But normally when we're playing drums in a pop song or most music, it's four bars or eight bars. So this was very interesting because it was like, you know, you have to make the shift at five bars and then you have seven bars and you make the shift then. So you're, you're still moving kind of through the parts of the song, but they come in very unlikely places. And that was a bit challenging for me. But what's really amazing then is, is well, then go ahead. So that was done with nothing. I just played that. That's and, right. And we just came up with my parts. So then go ahead and tell them how, you know, how, what was next after that. Well, the interesting thing is there's no exact process per piece. The way our process for that was, was I laid in the guitar foundation and then I put the bass part in and then I built up layers of higher guitars and I got angrier and higher. I moved the keys up almost. I stayed within the same key, but I moved the transition higher by adding more parts as it came to the end to build a sonic, you know, finish. You know, I had to go somewhere. I always use that term. This piece has to go somewhere. So we start out with the framework. We got your drums. You're the foundation. You're like the the bricks on the house. Then I had to build the walls, and I had to put the ceiling on, and then I had to put some tiles in and put the bathrooms in. And those are the guitar parts that I added. Now, since it's baseball, it was very guitar-centric. We actually had no keyboards in that piece. So I used layers of guitars to create almost horns. And, you know, your classic screaming ending. Um, and it was fun. It was just a, it was an incredible process. The piece came out beautiful. And yeah. 
Well, you know me, I don't, I don't even know what happens to pieces once they go out. I'm like, I have so <laughs> right. much stuff I'm doing. I'm like, oh, I don't even remember that. But What impressed me is that there was five bar and seven bar sections, which may sound very awkward on their own. Because you had analyzed the picture and broken it down, you know, suddenly every time the, we get to the end of that five bar thing and it goes to the next section, the whole piece shifts and the picture shifts. So now it becomes completely natural. And when you see the whole thing put together, it just is, is totally seamless. And what also knocked me out was that, you know, your layer upon layer of guitar, it sounds like an orchestra. I mean, it sounds so huge, like those, those sports theme show, you know, theme shows do. Da 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 da. You know, that sounds like it's bigger than, you know, life. And you just, you just totally nailed it all with guitars, but it doesn't just sound like guitars. It sounds like a full orchestra of instruments are playing. Um, that's an excellent point, and, and that's yeah. part of what makes part of why I, I'm a little bit of a different guitar player is because remember I was saying I don't quote play guitar. Yeah. The guitar yeah. is simply an instrument that I use. I use the guitar as a sonic instrument. I have all kinds of effects and boxes and all kinds of stuff, and I do a lot of sonic creation with the guitar that you wouldn't even ever know was a guitar. So it's simply a tool. It's a sonic tool for me, uh, and it was fun to do that. And you're right, we it, it's. You know, if I could go out there and play trumpet and saxophone, I would have went out there and played it, but I can't. So I turned that. And you know what's interesting? If you listen to brass, if you listen to French horns, distorted guitar has the same frequency characteristics as brass. So you can use that to create that da 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 da, -da just like you were saying, by yeah. finding a distortion. And remember, I was using really good amplifiers out there, and that's another point is that I use plugins and all these things, but I use a, an arsenal of kick-ass, really good amps yes. that I've curated over the years to know what does what right away. So in other words, I know my tools so well that I can get that sound right away. I don't have to hunt. Yeah. So let's move to, to the idea of your gear. And I think one of the things that, that you and I really have spent so much of our, um, our careers thinking about, which is using authentic gear, you know, analog amps, guitars, drums, uh, vintage drums in my case, mm. and understanding how to create moods. Because I think one of the reasons why we have such a great time in the studio, we come up with the stuff that we come up with is that we both have this huge, you know, catalog of styles, catalog right. of moods and feels and sounds in our individual instrument or how we've been thinking about things. And so talk a little bit about the gear that you use at the studio because it's, it's, you have such an amazing collection of stuff and it's, it's fascinating. Well, the studio to me is my home studio is my central base where I do the fundamental composing and mixing because my room is tuned. And that is a Pro Tools HD system and some nice outboard gear. I can't turn on big amps here because I'm in a condo. If I do need the big amps or to record live drummers such as yourself and or Ray Levier, who I also work with quite a bit, 
uh, I will go to Clubhouse Recording in Rhinebeck, which is a you know a, a family you might say, which is a big live room and a vintage Neve, and we all gather uh, and <clears throat> we ha- are able to get big sounds. Now um, my gear is yes, it is. It's my guitars and it's my amps, but it's also certain analog keyboards for certain pads and I'm actually I study orchestration so I can at home layer in those orchestral layers I don't purely do guitars I do a lot of other things but the guitar is my primary instrument followed by everything else now when I go to the big room and this is getting into a point of why I use live drummers which is actually a really important thing because there are tons of great loops out there I could just use those and be done with it but drum loops drum loops you mean drum loops yeah. yeah There's tons of them, and I'd still use them. They have a certain place. But live drummers, um, what the, the whole purpose of what you and I did was to bring exactly what you were just talking about to the table, and that is your history of drums. Your sonic style is very unique. And I wanted that for – we were doing trading spaces, and we were doing some other shows. And like your um, – what would you call that Gene Krupa type of thing? I don't even know what you would call it. The, I keep at, I, I just say to you, jungle. And you know, you know that's, <laughs> yeah, like a tom-tom driven kind those of Those are the group. terms I know. So I throw the term out at you and we come up with a tempo and a feel and your drums sound great. And we're in the live room. We have our headphones on and we go. And so this is going to sound weird, but you are part of my gear. <laughs> it's a great and way drums, to look at it. Yeah, it's true. Drummers are part of my gear. So I hear the big picture. I hear, I know where we need to go with the piece and, and you deliver the goods and you play parts that we change on the B section. And, you know, we have the stop time here and we are, what's really fun about it is you and I are playing to click most of the time, even though I prefer not to, but it's simply easier for editing. Uh, and then we visually look at each other for stop times and things like that. And then I'll let you go into a middle break where I'll just play bass with you and then bring the guitars in. It's a give and take experience that that loops could never in a million years offer you. And then when you mix the track and you step back and you listen, you go, that's totally cool. And then, you know, guys like, again, I use Ray Levier. Now, Ray is a super tight, clean, funky drummer. And I appreciate what he does too. And him and I will do certain things. And he uses his blast sticks for this and certain drums for that. And you have certain drums and you have a certain sound and a certain style. And I need that for certain things. And so, you know, that's the fun of of working with live drummers. And yes, it is more challenging, big picture wise, to get everybody together. But the end results undeniably speak for themselves. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, and, and I should point out, I, should, I, I don't know if we've made this clear enough, but when we do this process, there's no written music. It's not like Rich, like a lot of composers, writes everything out and we're coming in and reading from a score. We're, we're literally, in, in essence, making it up on the spot, but it's very, very um, – the, 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 the boundaries of what we're doing are very clear. So you sit there and you kind of come up with a riff and – What's really fun is that it's like, well, yeah, that's that's kind of stacksy. Okay, cool. Let's go with this kind of stacks thing. And then I know I've studied, you know, Al Jackson's drumming, and I read giant biography about stacks, and I have the stacks box set, which is like, you know, eight CDs or whatever it is. So I immediately know where to go. I'm thinking Al Jackson. I'm thinking put my wallet on the snare drum. I'm thinking, yeah. you know, you have these kinds of cymbal sounds, this kind of a tom tom thing, and so. You know, at the same time, you on this entire last session, you were into you had a Hofner bass, 
which which is the the bass that Paul McCartney used with the Beatles. And who and the hell what sound that was? Oh my god! <laughs> you know, and uh, so you know, you don't really see people using Hofner basses. I don't even know what the scuttlebutt is about we Hofner basses. Yeah, we were getting really funky with a Hofner and your drums. Yeah, and that reminds me of something else that your drummers will relate to. Um, something you can't do with a plug-in. You had these really cool hi-hats, yeah. uh, and you changed hi-hats. Then you would change snare. Then you would change a cymbal to be a brighter cymbal for this take or that take. And it's almost like your drums were, to me, plug-ins with little add-ons that we could change the sound of, and then you could approach them a little differently. Um, when we went to a bigger kind of piece, you had rock hi-hats. Is that is that correct? Yeah, was- exactly. I had a, I had a pair of um, vintage Zildjian... A's, which are a little thinner and, you know, good for like more of a, a thin jazzy kind of thing. And then I had a pair of modern, um, I can't remember what I was using. Uh, I think the, uh, Sabian Crescents. Um, uh, but anyway, a little heavier, a uh, little brighter. So, you know, it's, and what's cool is the first thing I'm thinking about is not what part I'm going to play. It's what is the sound we want to go for here. Which of the many corners of, you know, the sonic world are we trying to emulate? So is this a little more James Brown? Is this a little more, uh, you know, uh, Stax? Is this a little more Motown? You know, and, and we'll throw these words and terms around and, and, you know, then we lean really hard in that direction. Now, it doesn't really end up sounding like that in the end, but that's what we're thinking about, you know. And again, it's all for the purpose of creating this mood, Right, because the mood is there to enhance whatever's happening on the screen, and it's about a minute and a half, and the whole and, thing's a minute and a half long. Right. Yeah, and the whole pro- and, and you brought up an interesting point that I take for granted. We stand there in the live room with our headphones on, and we go, "Okay," and there's nothing written, and there's no, you know, there's a strategy because we know what show it's for, so we know basically what the tempos should be for that particular show, and then what the sonic branding of the show is which means how heavy should your drums be or how light should they be? What sticks should you play with or not play with, right? Should you use your blast sticks to keep it lighter? Should you use your heavy sticks? Should you go to the ride cymbal heavy for the B section, you know, et cetera? And then also what guitars do I use? Am I going for funk? So a lot of the things, you and I cut B and D tracks together, which means bass and drum and the, and the TV world. And I would plug in that Hofner and we would get nasty for a minute and a half. And it yeah. was... And, you know, we would we would. So what what happens is that uh, Mike Dwyer, the engineer who's great, is in the control room and I'll scratch out a tempo on my strings for him. He'll tap it into Pro Tools. All of a sudden, you and I have a click at that tempo feeding us. We will go over the A section. We will go over the B section and we will cut the track. And it reminds me of old school recording. You know, and and what what it is, you know, what's (laughs) really fun about it. Yeah. If we screw up, sometimes and most often, I prefer not to punch. Let's do it again. Yeah. Because we can, because it's a minute and a half long. Yeah. Exactly. Let's get this down. And usually have one or two shots and it's and we're we got it. We're moving on. Yeah. Let's uh let's give people a taste of this. I want to play that track uh that we did called Boogie Feet, which is the one that's uh uh jungle drums, you know, as you said. And you know, it's it's Gene Krupa esque, but not Really? And then we go into this cool B section and it's cool. So let's let's play that for folks now.
Okay, so with that type of piece, uh, we literally are standing there, and I'll say, all right, we need a, a, a jungle drum track. And so we'll scratch out the tempo, and you and I, I think we tracked, on that one, I'm pretty sure I tracked guitar first with it, with you. Uh, and then I would, once your track is solid, I would layer in, I laid in different guitar sounds, and I had a real uh, vibrato cabinet at the time, you know, a, a, a cabinet that was used with Hammond organs. And so I would use that and I would add up the, just the right amount of distortion that fits or not fits that type of piece and just begin the layering process of bass and drum and then there's bass, drum and guitar and then there's bass, drum, guitar and it's some kind of melodic thing. And that's the piece. We're done and we move on. Yeah. And I love, I mean, how awesome that you're sending a guitar through a, a Leslie speaker yeah, um, you know, because again, that that roots the sound in a particular kind of an era. But what I loved about this track is that it's just it just sounds fresh. It doesn't sound it sounds modern, but it has all these touches that pull your heart and your mind and your your memory in a certain kind of direction that just says this kind of rootsy vibe to it. You know, and, and I want to make a point. That's exactly why you use a real drummer. Yeah, just what you said. Could I have done that track with a loop? Sure. Would it have the same heart, tug, pull thing? Absolutely not. And yeah. there is the value of, you know. And coming, talking to you as a drummer, this is a different way of recording for any, even seasoned people are not used to this. This is an odd way to record. It sure is because um, it's, it's as much as we're creating on the spot, what you deliver to the network is they want something very focused because they're working a million miles an hour to edit these things together. And polished. And and polished. So let's listen to one more and then maybe you could talk a little bit about the form of that when we're done listening. This piece was called Ginormous, and you know these are silly titles that you just come up with uh, for the purposes of identifying them to be edited into the into the show, right? It just whatever strikes you. 
Yes, I don't even come up with them, so I, I just pass them along. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this is ginormous, but uh, let's talk about this, because this is kind of a really cool groove and an interesting bridge. Well, here's how that – I remember that specifically. Again, I was highly influenced by that cabinet that I was playing through. I just – this little thin riff. It's a, you know I think that, that was on a, uh, a, a Gibson Firebird, which is an unusual combination of guitars uh, – an unusual guitar to play that kind of – it almost sounds like a Telecaster to me. Um, but that led to the piece, and I knew we needed something that moved in that tempo. And then what I was doing is I, I, I remember feeding you the – uh, the sonic thought of that's all I would feed you and I don't even know what I'm feeding you I'm just feeding you a, a, an impulse and then you as the drummer take that and you came up with your part and it was this, it's, a, it's a shuffle and it, was, it, it came out really funky and cool and then we swung the B section right and what's cool about the first the first part is that you could say it's a 6-8 or a 12-8 one to the puppetic one to the puppetic implied to me, that's implied. But right? I, I, well, I'm playing all six notes or all 12 notes on the hi-hat. So what I was thinking was the Tears for Fear song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which has a similar drum part. Ding, 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 Oh, wow. There's your There's your bounce. So the point is that here's a good point. Regardless of what you and I are doing technically, I'm, my most important thing is is your foot bouncing in the show as they're painting a wall, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, or or you know selling some house or something. I don't even know, you know, whatever they're doing. I just want them to feel happy when they listen to this track. Yeah. But I want to bring soul and funk to it, which we did, and that's why when we swing the B section, it's very happy sounding. Yeah, and the B section goes to a more traditional shuffle, and I laid a couple of tracks of tambourine. Uh, on that uh, at your direction, which filled things up really nicely and just gave me a bed upon which to kind of lay that, that shuffle pattern on top of. Yes. And also remember I have you and, and I have everyone that I always double track tambourines, which sounds odd, but I like, I like a big left, right tambourine and I'll often request two different kinds of tambourines because I take that out of the classic. How important was tambourine in the in the '60s? It was it was as as important as the drums. Absolutely, it was on it's, everything. I and, use it. Like, yeah, I use a lot it, in the '70s too. Good point. Absolutely. Um, and I use two. So I usually have you follow your snare drum on the A sections and then drive the B sections quarter note wise, and then that that plays against the six feel because then there's this. This and that's what I want to get across. The, the music is just incidental, to be honest with you, to the feel, the implied thing that I want you to bring. And you bought it. And, you know, that's the fun of the give and the take of that session. Yeah. And so what people might notice from the form of that little thing is that, you know, the sections aren't too long. There are certain points where it breaks or there's a break with a drum fill. And then at the very end, sometimes there's just a little brum at the very end of it. And all That's of that is by design, right? Yeah, it's all by design. So the break in the middle is always for the editors to get out if they need to cut the scene short or if they need. And if you watch television, they rarely ever use the entire cue ever. It's they're taking pieces of it, whatever fits their needs. Uh, and then the ending that you're talking about is called a sting. And I sting everything out uh, because they don't fade anything. And, if, and next time you watch television, watch how editors work. They'll, they'll use the stings to move one scene to the next. Very interesting. So I try and think like an editor when I'm composing. I'm, I'm not composing. And I say, I say this all the time when I'm with people. This isn't for us. This isn't for us to get our jollies off on music, on how great we are as musicians. 
This is for the editors to cut a scene. And actually, to be honest with you, that's all I care about. But having said that, my intention is to bring the coolness to it, which is the real instruments, the great drums, your skill set, your ability to play certain things that other drummers don't honestly play or have drums. You have a very unique sound. And so that's why you were there. Yeah, that's that's it's great. It's a great point because you hear a lot of TV incidental music that's just downright awful. You know, somebody's you know sounds like a Casio from 1985 and a really bad drum machine. And to me, you know that that detracts from the experience uh, to just you know to 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 even on a show like a reality show where it is very formulaic. They're they're slamming stuff in. When you have a show that has some really hip music to it, it it, it sets the mood. It, it it brings another layer of quality. So certainly our job is to make is to fulfill the obligation of what of what we're doing with the with the track. But I think we you know, I love it. I think we come up with just some very cool sounding stuff and I I appreciate that that you're thinking about that, you know, that, that that's um, a, a, an important part of the process that we really bring some life to it. Uh, at, it's at, worked at the for, end. for a long time, and and I think the term reality show, reality TV, is a is a very broad scoped term. That's more like people that are like out alone in the you know getting hunted by snakes or something. <laughs> but there's so many shows. There's crime shows. There's sports yeah. shows. There's DIY shows are huge. You know, painting this. You know, whatever, building this house. Barnwood Builders, whatever. Cooking oh, cooking shows. Cooking shows, yeah. So yeah, when I do yeah. stuff for cooking shows, it's a completely different sonic experience than what you and I were going for. But that's the fun of it. You know, you and I had a specific objective, and we met our objective greatly. What's also interesting is we did eight pieces of music that day. In um, a few hours. Yeah, in a few hours, each Start one. Start to finish with nothing written. And, yeah. that, you know, therein lies the challenge and the, and the fun. Yeah, and but what's neat is then you take those and you slice and dice them up in a variety of ways. So talk about that, you know, so we get more deliverables than what we just per recorded. Piece. Right, per so piece, yeah. piece. So let's use the example of what you just played. So you would do a full mix, you would do a minus melody mix, full mix minus melody, and then you would do a B and D mix, bass and drum, and you'll hear a lot that on TV a lot. And the reason B and D mixes work is because there's no sonic branding to that piece. It, it's just a, a movement. The drums and the bass are moving the piece along without any kind of major or minor implicated key. Then you do a cut down, which is like less than half of the length of that. Well, that's why we stop. You and I would make stop times in the middle of the piece. Right. Then you, there's cut down right away. And then you do what, what's called the, the sting, which is like eight or 10 seconds. And you can take the melody out of both of those. And one piece is now six pieces. Yeah. So the editors have, I call them Lego blocks. The editors have Lego blocks to work with now from one piece. Great. Well, it's, um, it's amazing. And I encourage everybody here listening to, to start, you know, to check that out. The next time you watch one of those reality shows is like really listen to how the music functions, how it moves the show from place to place, um, how they're going to take you on a, on a journey, you know, whether the show is, whether you think reality TV is cheesy or not. That it's designed to to hold your interest and move you from from point A to point Z in that thirty minute slot and line you up so you'll be ready for next week's episode. You'll be can't wait to see what they're going to do next time. You know, 
and to hear what they're going to do next time with our music. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, so Rich, man, it's uh, I think we'll wrap it here, but it's just been really, really great to have you uh, on the show. Any final thoughts about you know anything, drums, music, anything you want to let us know that you're up to or that we should look for? DG, a pleasure as usual, and I never like to talk about what I'm doing. I actually just like to do it. All and right. With that, in mind, right? Let's. I look. I already look forward to our next session. And Me too. Everybody out there, you know, really listen to television. Listen to the incredible amount of creativity, not just of me, of guys that I don't even know, and I applaud them. I, I want them to write great music because there's so much great music behind these shows on TV. There really is. So it's exciting, and I look forward to our next session, brother. Great. All right. Well, thanks, Rich, for uh, for being with us here on the Daniel Glass Show. 